It's time now to turn our attention to God's Word, and we turn now to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz, you know that Dorothy and her friends are not a little disappointed when they finally see the man behind the curtain. He is not the great and powerful Oz as they were led to believe. Instead, they find a fast-talking huckster who ended up in Oz by accident. It is, frankly, an astounding metaphor for much of life. We experience the razzle-dazzle of something only to find uh, a very thin veneer of anything good covering something totally unsatisfying to our life. And yet throughout this book, as we have been looking over the last several weeks, we have seen the exact opposite happening for Daniel. Over the course of his life, God has at various times and various ways pulled back the curtain of reality, allowing Daniel to gain glimpses of his glory and his plan. And each time, Daniel has gone away encouraged and astounded at what he has seen. And as we begin chapter 10 this morning, we see that nothing has changed. Here, God gives Daniel another vision, and in fact, a vision that will be his last, at least the last that we have recorded in this book. And here, God enables Daniel to see what is transpiring behind the scenes of everyday life, so that he can be encouraged in his final years of faithful service. He has given insight to the plan and power of God and how things are going to come to an end. In fact, chapter, uh, these opening verses in chapter 10 begin what is essentially the conclusion of the book that stretches over chapters 10, 11, and 12. And it's here that Daniel is given the kind of background scene of all of the spiritual reality that is going on behind him. I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at Verse 1 of chapter 10. (coughs) In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand And humbled yourself before God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. 
and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face from the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then he opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. May God bless the reading of his word. As we said before here, God gives Daniel a greater understanding of the spiritual realities that lie behind everyday life. The everyday coming and going of God's people in the world. Yet this knowledge of spiritual conflict behind the scenes isn't given to us so that we can endlessly speculate or obsess about it. Whenever angels or demonic forces are pictured in the Bible, they are there for a reason to teach us something. They are not to become the objects of, frankly, worship that we think about and meditate on all the time. Instead, what is presented here is meant to give us light on how we should live in the here and now. We are not to worry about all that goes on behind the scenes, but rather with a good, basic knowledge of what is going on behind the scenes, we set our eyes on what is around us and what is before us and live in light of that. As we consider this passage then, we should better understand how we can contend for the faith in this world that we can see, knowing what is taking place and what we can't see. To this end, we want to understand five truths about God's servants. Five truths about those that love and serve God. Five truths that should be true of us as his people. The first truth that we see is this. God's servants understand God's conflict. God's servants understand God's conflict. The chapter opens, as many in this book does, with a chronological marker. Daniel tells us when the events are taking place. Specifically, he says it was in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that a world was a word was revealed to him. Now, we know from the other biblical books that this takes place just a few years after Cyrus decreed the people of Israel could go back into their homeland out of exile and begin rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. We read about all of this in the book of Ezra, but we also read that things did not go as well as expected. It was kind of like the couple who decides to buy the previously owned home thinking they can do a little bit of work on it and make it look great. It's then five years on, tens of thousands of dollars have been spent into it, and the end is not in sight. The situation is now worse than it first appeared. Likewise, we read in Ezra that as soon as the exiles returned, opposition to the work began. 
they experienced difficulty and resistance, not only from the few Israelites who stayed behind and eked out a meager living, but also now all of their new neighbors around. And in fact, such was the frustration and the difficulty and the opposition that all of the work they were so excited to begin ground to a slow halt. Now, three years on, as Daniel is seeking to pray, the people that returned are simply trying to survive. And as we have seen so many times before, here is Daniel again interceding for his people. He is praying for them that God might be with them and strengthen them in their task. And it was in the midst of this extended time of prayer and fasting that this visionary word came to him. Daniel says this word was true in verse 1 and it was about a great conflict. What is being shown to Daniel, I believe, is why the people of Israel had experienced opposition, why the work had slowed, why feelings of triumph and victory had given way to feelings of doubt and disgrace. Daniel is shown the answer, and that is this, behind the scenes is a great and raging conflict. Unseen by human eyes, there rages a cosmic battle of spiritual forces. Angelic and demonic beings are waging war for the souls of men, on one side at least, for the glory of God. And it's important for those that serve God, for God's people, for his servants to understand this for at least a couple of reasons. Number one, because it keeps us from underestimating the immensity of spiritual realities. You see, there is, a, there is a temptation to simply live by what we can see, to simply live by what we can quantify, by what we can smell and touch and taste and observe, and to think that's it. It is, in fact, a very narrow-minded way of looking, despite the fact that some of the science community would say we are, in fact, those that are narrow-minded. I'm always amazed by Christians who see all kinds of scientific data about the supposed origins of the universe, and they always say, you know, uh, you know we, we, we've got to believe these things, and da-da-da-da-da. And, and yet when pressed, they would say, uh, yes, if, if we only had the Bible and not these scientific things, then we would surely believe that God created everything in a moment and over six days. So you have the Bible, you have what God says, but you won't believe it because you can't actually see what's taking place can't see God at work, but you can see scientific data. So you throw out the Bible in light of science. Well, we do the same thing in so many other areas, particularly when it comes to our spiritual life. We can't see it, therefore we ignore it. And yet what we must remember as we seek to live in this world is that amidst the everyday life of work and family and sports and summer cookouts, there is an ongoing, raging, violent spiritual war and eternal souls hang in the balance. You you cannot look at someone and see their eternal fate, but God can. And the angelic beings that serve him can. And as we casually talk with our neighbors over a Coke, some of them have already the stench of the flame of hell upon their souls. And yet if we do not see that, what will happen but inactivity on our part? If we are blinded to the spiritual realities around us, then we will not advance as God's servants in this spiritual war. Instead, we will sit back and do nothing. Furthermore, it's important that we're aware of the greater spiritual conflict because it will help us to remember who our real enemy is. 
Do you remember what Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 6? He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, <coughs> against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now remember who's writing this. It's the Apostle Paul, a man who was beaten, stoned, in prison, and run out of town by human hands. And yet what does he say? Those are not our enemies. He says, yes, flesh and blood is real, and it can carry out acts of wickedness. But behind those acts is a power far more terrible, far more sinister, a demonic force. Yes, people can hurt and hinder the cause of Christ, but it is coming at the direction of Satan himself and all of the hell-bound forces of darkness that he commands. Knowing this, remembering this, keeping this in the back of our mind helps keep us from making people the target of our frustration and anger. People become objects to be redeemed from the spiritual forces of darkness rather than our enemies to fight. That's the first thing that we need to see then. God's servants being aware of the conflict that God is engaged in in the spiritual realms. And yet secondly, we need to see that God's servants are those that care for God's people. God's servants are to care for God's people. In light of the return of the exiles we read about in Ezra, one of the things that we simply have to think about is this. Why didn't Daniel go back? I mean, after everything that we have read in this book, it should strike us as odd that Daniel doesn't return to Israel. As faithful as he has shown himself to God and his purposes, you would have thought that was the first thing in Daniel's mind. In fact, I think it's immediately apparent in his mind and from the previous chapter in 9 and how he prays. And yet, Daniel doesn't go back. We're not told, but we have to ask. We have to speculate. We have to wonder. And the first thing that we consider is that perhaps he's simply too old for the journey back. After all, he was well into old age, probably his mid to late 80s. Maybe it was just simply more than he could do. And yet it might be more than just that. It might be more than just the physicality. After all, sometimes in Scripture we see that God's people often want to do something good and right and godly, and yet their king says no. God says, what you desire is good, but that's not my desire for you. I have other plans for you. This side of heaven we have no way of knowing for sure, but perhaps the Lord had given Daniel a deep conviction that he was to remain in Babylon. Back in Israel, the work would have been largely a young man's work. The rebuilding of Jerusalem would have involved heavy labor, action, busyness, defense of the city, and so much more. And yet in some ways... Daniel's role is far more important here. As Sinclair Ferguson says, his work was that of, quote, hidden but strategic work of prayer for the defense and advance of God's kingdom. And here we gain a glimpse into that strategic work. Daniel says, in those days, he was mourning for three weeks, verse 3, and I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. According to the time frame, Daniel's fasting would have been during the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. Now, again, if you know anything about Old Testament, that's strange. Because the feast of the Passover and unleavened dead were not days of mourning and fasting. They were days of celebration. They were days that reminded Israel of God's salvation through the Exodus. That, that was the defining annual celebration for all of Israel. D.A. Carson says it's the equivalent, uh, perfectly timed, is it not? It is their equivalent of the 4th of July. 
What did we do this past week? Nothing. Now, some of us work, but what do we like to do? We want to take a vacation, right? We get one day off work. We cook out. We have food and friends. We watch rockets exploding, right, with red glare over the river. Why? All celebrating the freedoms that we have in this country. It it is only those who have no idea what this country is about or or spoiled brats out in Hollywood that would be downers on the 4th of July, right? Nobody walks around fasting and say, well, I'm going to fast for the 4th of July. What, are you insane? No, you grill up the extra burger or the extra dog or whatever it is that you eat. You have the double portion because you are celebrating. But Daniel's not doing that. He's fasting. He's mourning. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's giving up his normal diet of rich foods in the royal court. He's giving up the oils that would have made life in the desert more bearable, all the while spending time in prayer for his people. Why is he doing that? It's for the simple fact that he loves his people. He loves Israel. He cares for them. It was precisely at this significant time that he was remembering Israel, both the faithless who had chosen not to return but to remain in Medo-Persia, as well as the faithful who were there enduring difficult times. He was remembering them, even identifying with them, lifting them up to God in prayer. He knew that they were not living out their existence as they should be able to, as the people of God who experienced the joy and the glory of the exodus. Therefore, he was in mourning for them as a people, lifting them up to God that they might again experience his saving hand. Well, this is surely an example for us today. It is precisely because God's people are the object of spiritual attack that we must be concerned for them. And not just for those in our immediate surroundings. I think Daniel anticipated the Apostle Paul who said that Christians should be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's a lot of alls in there. Our prayer life is to be vast and varied. There should be a depth to our concern for the people of God that extends just beyond the immediate needs that we can see. I hope that you spend a regular amount of time praying for the people that you're united to as members of this fellowship. But I hope you pray for more than them as well. That there is a global community of faith that needs our prayers. There are sheep that are not yet of this fold that Christ must bring in. We should be praying for them as well. Think about our brothers and sisters where poverty is the norm and persecution is sometimes a way of life. Perhaps in giving up the abundance that we have been given by God for a time in prayer and fasting, we can not only bring down God's blessings on them, but come to a better appreciate what God has given to us. Regardless of the details of how we actually do it, the point here is that there is a spiritual conflict raging against God's people. And if we really care for them, if we really love them, we will follow the example of Daniel and we will spend time concern for their welfare before God in prayer. Third, God's servants are to reflect God's character. God's servants are to reflect God's character. We see this in verses 5 through 9. Daniel has been fasting and praying, and once again God sends a heavenly messenger in response. Now some believe this is a Christophany, that is an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. I think we see several of those in the Old Testament, but I am not inclined to see this 
as one of them. I think this is simply one of the innumerable, uh, innumerable angelic beings who come and go and serve at God's command, and I will show you why in the next point. Okay? For now, though, I want you to notice his appearance. In fact, Daniel struggles to find words in order to adequately describe how he looks. Much like the Apostle John in Revelation, he resorts to vocabulary of stones and precious metals and natural elements to describe the inexpressible beauty he beholds. He says there is this figure clothed in linen and everything about him expresses power and beauty and majesty and glory and honor. In verses 5 and 6, he has a belt of fine gold of Uphaz around his waist. His body is like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. When he speaks, the tone and power of his voice causes Daniel to say it sounds like a multitude of voices. Here's a being who had been in the glorious presence of God and now reflected that glory before a watching Daniel. In fact, in fact, everything about this angel's appearance is meant to cause Daniel to reflect on the glory and character of God. The linen clothing, the only place that we see that mentioned is in the priesthood, those that would atone for and make intercession for the redeemed people of God. The lightning and the flame are reminiscent of Sinai where God reveals his glory and powerfully declares his willingness and ability to keep covenant faithfulness to his people. Think about the ancient peoples. Think about you were given the task to explain nuclear power to them. How would you do that? Well, there's these things called atoms, and you, you, know, you create fission, and they explode. What is an atom? Isn't that my forefather? You know, that's what they're thinking, right? So how, how do you convey power to the ancient peoples? Well, the most, until today, again, ancient peoples, the most powerful thing, the most amazing source of power and energy that was completely untamable was what? It was lightning. It was weather in general, but especially lightning. Have you ever been out in an open field? I mean like an open field, no cover, no trees, no houses, no huts, nothing, and been in a severe thunderstorm where there's like tornado sirens going off? It is the most terrifying thing you can possibly imagine. Wind howling, rain beating, flashes of lightning illuminating the sky as if it is daytime. Think about the ancient peoples and what that would have been like. And yet here, here it is a face that is composed of lightning and flame. What power and majesty. This is not only reflecting of God, but to Daniel about God and his servant. And all of this is not just incidental to the appearance of the angelic being. In other words, he's not just putting on a light show for Daniel. He is very intentionally being able to reveal himself this way because he is reminding Daniel of who God is, of his past power and presence, his glory and his grace. And just as the angel bears the marks of God's presence, so does Daniel. What happens to Daniel? He can hardly stand. He can hardly talk. In fact, he needs the enablement of God 
through this angel to even comprehend what is saying. When the angel first speaks, he says it's just noise. I heard, this, the, I heard the sound of his words. He can't even make out the words. He's so blown away. And he keeps passing out. And the angel has to keep probably out and say, come on now, Daniel. Listen to what I have to say. Pastor Legan Duncan rightly notes that when we, while we talk about intimacy with God all the time, the Bible always portrays true intimacy with God as something that leaves its mark on the individual. The great Old Testament picture of what it means to be intimate with God is seen in a limping Jacob, slowly moving away with an injured hip after encountering the captain of the hosts of the Lord. It's seen in Moses who walks off the mountain with a face beaming with such radiance that fear runs throughout the camp of Israel and a veil must be draped over his face while he is not in the tabernacle with God. When you are truly intimate with God, it leaves a mark. People who experience encounters with God are never the same again. They have a deeper sense of who God is, and in the process they come to have a deeper sense of who they are, specifically who they are in their need of God, in their desperate need of God. And in that process of encountering God, they lose their taste for all that is trivial. For they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They long for more of Him. They desire to live near Him, delighting in the forgiveness and the cleansing that He offers. Here Daniel is one who has encountered the glory of the living God as well. He is on his face, trembling, prostrate, unconscious. All the while he is lifted to his feet by the angelic visitor, trembling in the presence of of God's emissary. It is the presence of God himself that leaves its mark on Daniel. As we think about our own life today, in the midst of this great spiritual conflict, if we are truly going to be of service to God in this world, then we must bear in our own souls the marks of God's presence. We must reflect the radiance of his character. And this only comes by seeking God's face. One can only give evidence of being in God's presence if he or she actually spends time in God's presence. We cannot hope, we cannot hope to be changed into the, the, the image of Christ unless we are seeking communion and fellowship with God through Christ. And yet so much of Christian spirituality is just playing games. It's doing activities when what God calls us to do is to be with Him. Fourth, God's servants struggle for God's plan. God's servants struggle for God's plan. Here we are given a glimpse into the nature of the spiritual conflict we've been talking about. The angel says in verse 12, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief priests, came, princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And in verse 20, Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except, the, except Michael, your prince. <coughs> Notice first the language used to speak of those involved in the conflict. They are princes. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. The prince of Greece. Michael, your prince, he says. 
The, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia is apparently a demonic being that is somehow connected with the Persian people, similar to the prince of Greece. Likewise, Michael being your prince, it is said to Daniel, is seemingly the angelic being assigned to the people of Israel. And yet, the hierarchy of all these angelic beings is not governed directly by the relationships of their earthly counterparts. So, so much so that while there is a war between good and evil on earth, there is also war between good and evil in heaven. And when I say heaven, I do not simply mean the dwelling place of God. You know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I die and go to heaven. It's not that heaven. The Bible actually uses the word heaven in different ways. We're simply talking about the reality of spiritual existence upon which both the angels and the demons dwell. Furthermore, it's important to understand this conflict is a conflict. It's not just heavenly beings sitting around playing harps telling one another off. There is war going on here. In fact, here we see a struggle that lasts for weeks. Incidentally, this is a large part of why I don't think this is Christ. I cannot imagine any demonic being, no matter how powerful, holding and struggling with Christ for a period of time and not allowing him to pass. No force in heaven or hell could have stopped him for 21 days, let alone one. Nevertheless, here is an angel engaged in such a fight. And truth be told, I have no idea what this looks like. I don't think anybody does. I mean, I get swords and shields, snipers and infantry, tanks and nukes. I get all that. I understand how warfare works on that level. But this, I have no idea what that looks like. Probably like something out of a science fiction movie. That's That's my best guess. So again... Are we to get caught up in it and and sit and ponder for hours this afternoon? What does it look like for an angelic being to struggle? No, 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 that's not the point. The point is simply to know that it is there, it is real, and it's terrifying. I think the Dutch politician and theologian Abraham Kuyper is surely right when he says, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. I think he's right. And it's important that we see all of this is happening according to God's plan. The angel comes to Daniel because God has heard the prayers of his servant. He is going against the princes of Persia and Greece just as God directed him to. And that we aren't privy to the details of the comings and goings of the struggles on that level. Nevertheless, we do know the basics. God has given us his word which tells us what he has done, what he is doing now, why he is doing those things, and the end to which all of these things are happening. He has given us the end of the story, as it will. And so therefore we know how we are to also struggle according to the plan of God. He's given us his basic strategy. Make disciples of all nations, and then the end will come. I will destroy sin and evil forever, and my people will enjoy eternity in my presence. Do we need much more than that to know how to live and fight and struggle in this world? Our calling is not to write up new plans or follow our emotions or go with our guts. Instead, we are to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ, praying like Daniel for the advance of God, saving reign to the ends of the earth, even as we ourselves take up the sword of the gospel to advance it person by person wherever we are. As God's servants, our calling is to follow in the footsteps of those who have come before, to take our place in the struggle for God's plan, a plan to unite all things 
through Christ. Finally, the last thing that we see about God's servants is that they are to trust in God's power. God's servants trust in God's power. Thinking about the angel struggling for weeks with an enemy, you may get the impression that somehow God is weak. Or perhaps that the universe and the spiritual battle that is going on is best represented by the yin-yang symbol. Black and white equally opposed going at one another for all of eternity. And in fact, there is a certain niche of Christian fiction that even projects that very kind of thing. It's as if all the spiritual forces of God are barely hanging on and are unable to secure a victory until God's people actually make the right decision in their life. And of course, in the meantime, there are demons around every corner pinching babies in churches, causing us to lose our keys or getting us into car accidents and more, all in an effort to distract us from doing what we're supposed to be doing for God. Well, I don't think the Bible gives us that view of the spiritual nature of the conflict that is going on. Furthermore, if we read a passage like this and come away thinking God isn't really in control, then we have failed to hear the entirety of Daniel's message and press this text too far. Just a few chapters back, do we not remember the lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar learned? He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And the Lord God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Did you catch that? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Everything among the host of heaven, the angelic beings, and among the inhabitants of the earth, God works according to his will. None can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? Yes, there is a terrible, violent spiritual war that is going on, but it all takes place under the sphere of God's sovereign reign. All things in heaven and earth are under his control, and nothing can stay his hand. There's no wiggle room there. You can't say, well, but yeah, but Satan's in there. No, the, It is clear there is nothing outside his sphere of control. In fact, given the desires of the devil, Israel would have perished in exile if not long before. Think about the history of redemption from Genesis to Daniel. Think about what God has done. Think about the rage against the people of God as Satan sways their hearts towards idolatry and conflict, even as God keeps calling them back to himself through prophets and judges and godly kings. Satan finally manages to wipe out 10 of the 12 tribes. We have no idea what happened to them. They're gone, lost forever to the ages. Yet two tribes survive in exile. But Satan doesn't give up, does he? He tries to see them assimilated into nothing among the peoples of Babylon and Persia, as we saw happening with Daniel. Why? Why is Satan doing this? Because he knows. He knows from one of these tribes will come the promised Messiah, the very Son of God, who will not only win salvation for God's people, but will crush his head. He's been told that from practically the very beginning of all creation. Yes, you'll bruise his heel. But he will crush your head. Satan would have stopped this from happening. But remember what the angel says in the very last verse that we read? In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. What happened? What happened in the first year of Darius the Mede? The decree went out that the Jews returned to the promised land. And the angel, I think, is here saying, I did that. That was me. 
I take responsibility. As an agent of the sovereign hand of God, I confirmed and strengthened Darius according to the intention that God put in his heart concerning the remaining Israelites. Let them go back to their land. And thus it is by the power of God that his plan continues until that Savior, Christ the King, eventually comes. Humbly born by the seed of the woman that he might bear the sins of many on a cross. And what few knew who saw him dying in agony on that cross as his final yell went out and his life expired was that that yell, that scream was not a defeat, but a cry of victory. Because the decisive battle in the spiritual conflict had been won. When Christ rose back from the dead with new life coursing through his glorified veins, it signaled the triumphant power of God over sin, death, and the hell. It signaled the powerful dawning of the age to come. The the future life that God has been working all things toward. A new creation of heaven and earth has already begun with the resurrection of our risen king. All through this vision, Daniel keeps fading. It has to be revived by the power of God, mediated through this angel. And here, frankly, we have a picture of the life of God's people. When we are at our weakest, God shows himself to be powerful and the source of all our strength. So many of us try to live and serve God, and we do it by our own steam. We think, I've got this, God. I'll leave the big stuff up to you. And the problem is we will fail every time. Every time. There are so many in the church today that think we will grow and advance by clever ideas and good music and community involvement. And we are dead wrong. We are dead wrong. We aren't against those things. But they don't grow a church. The power of God through the prayerful proclamation of the gospel is what grows a church. Mary, Queen of Scots, said she feared the prayers of John Knox more than any invading army. Why? Because she knew that he labored in prayer. He labored in prayer for his native Scotland. Understand, there is no power in prayer. You you can tweet this. There is no power in prayer, but there is a powerful God who hears and answers prayer. We say amen, but what do we do? We forsake it. We are not a praying people, loved ones. We treat it as boring, as old hat. And sometimes we can't even give an hour a month to come and intercede before God for his people and for ourselves against the spiritual forces of darkness that are on our doorstep raging against us. Unless we come to see our desperate, desperate need of God. And the solution to that need is going before him in prayer and seeking his face. We will never amount to anything in his service for this kingdom. We will will exist in a state of standstill, holding the ground that we have, but never advancing on the enemy's territory. When I watch the Super Bowl every year, I always notice there are those players who have done nothing for the whole game but sit on the bench. They just sit there waiting for someone to be injured, waiting for something to happen that they might be able to come in and play. At the end of the game, they have clean jerseys and no sweat. And yet it's always these guys, as the game is winding down, and it's clear their team is the winners, they're going and patting the quarterback on the back, telling him good job, they're shaking hands with the coach, they're jumping to the celebrations of those who played every game and won it. 
And this morning, friends, we have a choice before us. We can just sit back and be happy to be on God's team. We can just sit back and be thankful for the gospel, that we are forgiven, that we are saved, that we are going to heaven, or we can actually get in the game. More than that, we can be on the front lines of a spiritual conflict that Christ our King calls us to. He is the captain, Hebrews says, that has gone on before us and assured the victory. There is, there is no even threat of defeat if we are following after him. He has called us to fight against sin in ourselves and in others for the sake of the souls of men. And this is a, a fight that is not one with swords or bullets. It is a war that is fought on our knees and our words as we advance the plan of God in prayer and preaching, not our own strength, but by the gracious power of God at work through us. This morning, who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve ourselves and do what's comfortable and easy? Or are we going to serve God? are going to take the reality of the spiritual warfare around us seriously and pick up this sword of the Spirit and call out in prayer for God's power that we might wield it effectively for the glory of His name and the sake of His kingdom. That's the choice that stands before each and every one of us this morning. I can't make that choice for you. You have to make it for yourselves. I pray that you make the right one. Father, we come away from this amazing passage, God, this amazing gift that you gave to Daniel, this clarity of vision about what is going on in the things that we can't see. And we are reminded of Paul's words in the New Testament that say, we walk by faith and not by sight. For God, our eyes betray us. They can only see the realities of this life and not beyond. But in our hearts and our minds, you have told us what is beyond. You you have given us a glimpse. Father, even as we sit here now as your people, so much struggle and conflict existed to bring us to this place where we are today. Some major conflicts, some small conflicts. And yet, Father, we are the product of your gracious and powerful hand. We are the product of people who prayed, perhaps generations ago, that the gospel might continue to go forth and bear fruit. Father, I pray it is our desire not to drop the baton that has been handed to us. Father, it's my prayer that we would not fail to take seriously your kingdom advance And Father, for the sake of so many good gifts that you have given to us, forsake you, the giver of those gifts, and the calling that you place on our lives. Father, make us to be your servants. God, make us to be your servants who understand the conflict around us. Your servants who care for your people those that exist now around this world and those in the generations to come. God, make us to be a people who know that we are to follow your plan and not our own, who seek to live according to your power, your strength. God, whether we are feeble in body or mighty in body, 
Father, none of that matters in this conflict. What matters is the might of our faith and our souls before you. God, make us to be a people of your word. Make us to be a people of prayer. Make us to be a gospel people, O God, that we might truly serve you with our lives. We ask this in the name and for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose kingdom has come and will never end.